I've got two things. Really, they go in different directions, and I'm right now trying to determine how to start. So I think I'm going to skip the first notes I have and start back in to, and I literally, sometimes I think you guys might think I'm fooling around with you and like, like embellishing. I have my very first scripture listed as Romans 8.28. So I wanted to start there because, and I'm going to try to tie it in, and it may not like flow right in, but man, I am telling you, there is no doubt in my heart and mind that this is exactly what I'm supposed to talk about because of the nature of the way that my vision was in the room today. I, I am so... I was in a conversation the, last night with some Christian folks that I've recently met, and we were talking about Holy Spirit stuff and, and the indwelling. The, we've talked about this many a times when you become saved and born again, that God, Jesus, because of His willingness to go to the cross and ascending to heaven... His last words on earth before He returned to heaven, because we know that's where He came from, as the Word, and the Word became man, Jesus became man, and He walked and ministered on the earth, and then He went to the cross, willingly surrendering His life for you, so that He could satisfy the law, the law which was broke all the way back in Adam and Eve's time, and it's always, we've been pursuing the satisfying of the law. Jesus satisfies the law. He pays, God willingly gives His Son, and He goes to the cross and endures agony we can't even understand. And He does that for a purpose. And the purpose is to redeem you. To, to be able to wear the cross, die from the cross, go down and conquer death, and then he comes. He gets resurrected and he spends time on earth. But most importantly, at the end of that exchange with his disciples, he says, I'm ascending to heaven, and when I do, you're going to get the helper. You're going to get the comforter. I am going to release to you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to be released to you, and when he comes to you, you will be filled with that, and you will, you will have, we sang it today, resurrection power. You will have power that you don't have on your own. It will be a power that's imparted to you, and you're capable of living beyond. So what's that look like? Well, I've already heard you guys talking about it. What does it look like? Okay, it would look like, and I don't mean to single anyone out, but I can't help because you singled yourself out. And you know, I hope you're comfortable. So I heard more than one instance today of the Holy Spirit either actively overcoming something or beckoning you because the conflict becomes real. So what do I mean by that? Sorry, Ashley. Uh, so Ashley's battling. I know this because I talked to her for at length yesterday about it. She's battling with her feelings of inadequacies as a mother. Is that okay that I say that? She's battling with that. Why is she battling with that? Because the enemy is involved in her life. That's okay to say, right? Because we know the enemy. Someone that's not here today says something like, new level, new devil. So we know for sure that if you're saved and you've asked Jesus to be your personal Savior, that you receive, you're born again, you receive new life. 
You, the Bible says that you become brand new, that you become a different creature. It also lets us know that in, in, in that you can be new created. You should not be owned. I'm going to say it like that. Not, I'm not saying you shouldn't have conflict, but you should not be owned. And man, how many times have we talked about this? Because it's a daily thing, right? You should not be owned by your negative thinking of who you are. We know that's a fact of the matter. Jesus says plainly, Paul says it over and over, you become made new. And then he says something more. I was not going here, but this is where we're at. He says more. And he says, he goes in and he's like, what? remember the, in Romans 7, he's like, oh, why do I... Why do I do or why do I think wrong about myself? Why am I dominated by this negative energy? Why do I keep making these choices that then circle back and make me feel ashamed and bad about myself? And he comes to the conclusion, I can't help it. Like it's naturally part of me. I'm stained. And he realizes that it, the only way out is through Jesus. He says in Romans 8.1, which is right before the scripture we have on our book today, he says right before that, thank God. There is no shame in Christ Jesus. He uses the word condemnation, but it's shame. There is no shame or guilt. Like, the sentence is forgiven. So, what's our part in that? Huh. It's the hard part, right? Why is it hard? Because it's easier for me to believe, I almost said the bad word, to believe the crud that our brain, that the enemy is bringing into your mind. It's easier for us to believe that than to believe actually that I've been made new. And the reason it's easier to believe is because you've lived it. You have been, excuse me if I offend anybody, you have been <laughs> that which you think about yourself. We have kind of lived it out, right? Now, we've probably elevated it because we're good at beating ourselves up. We're good at tearing ourselves down. We're good at that. However, I'll speak for me. There's no doubt I have lived the way that my mind speaks to me. I have lived like a low-life, weirdo, hide-in-the-dark, Freakazoid. I have been the guy that cuts out a half-inch slither in his Venetian blinds so he could put his eye up to it. And, you know, and every 20 seconds, I'm, um, you know what I'm saying? Someone's coming. It's not funny, but it's real, ain't it? <laughs> we have lived that way, so it's easier to believe the natural, right, than to believe the supernatural, this thing surpasses understanding. You cannot reason it out. You're not going to figure it out. You're not going to be able to go, oh, and connect the dots and go, oh, I get it now. It's the way it is. It's supernatural in its ability to change the way you think. My experience has been this. It, it is ongoing. Like, I know for a fact he could strike you right now and just change everything about the way you think. I believe he can do that. 
That's not been my experience. My experience is I hang my hat that I have a new life. I believe that by faith. I've been born again. I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. He guides and directs me into things. I desire things I would never have desired. I, I, I long to be in relationship, intimate relationship with other people and talk about the Holy Spirit. I'm drawn into those things. I have compassion. I drive down the road. It happened to me yesterday. I can't remember what happened to me this morning. Did you see the guy by the pantry? Not the guy at the pantry. That happened too, but the guy walking towards your church. I noticed I have compa- like a heart for people, right? Like I get drawn into their life and I pray for them. I would have never had that sense. I know that is from the Holy Spirit. So, however, on a daily basis, I struggle on a daily basis on many decisions to think either with the old brain or allow the new to take effect. And the only way I'm capable of doing that is I have to ask for it. There's another key component that is tied into that. Most of you are already going to get it because you already get it lots of times a week when you come in here for other meetings. But, and Jesus is a great example as a man on earth. He required something. So Jesus did not do his ministry alone. You know, the first thing he did when he got called into his full-blown ministry was he went and he fasted and he prayed. And when his fast was over, he come down off the mountain, the hillside, and what did he do? He start, Well, he got baptized first. But as soon as that happened, he set out on a mission. He went and got him some buddies. He went and got some friends. He called people into his life with him. He, he's, he's walking by fishermen. He said, hey, put your net down. These are guys that have fished their 20 generations. However long their family's been alive, they've been fishermen. And they're sitting there collecting up their net. And he walks by them and he speaks into their life. I am telling you, he is speaking into your life just like that. you got to be willing to hear him say it. He's speaking into your life. He tells them, he says, hey, put your net down. I'm going to come follow me. And what do they do? Beyond all logic, it would not make sense to them to set their net down. It's the way they make their living. They have done this since they were baby boys. It's all they know. Their kids were going to do this. They were fishermen. And Jesus is like, hey. And he looks dead at them. And he looks down into their heart. And he says, won't you come and follow me? And they have the open-mindedness and the willingness and the open heart and to just follow him. We have so much bigger advantage, if that's able to be put together, over those guys. They had no Bible. They had no New Testament. Jesus had not done what he committed to do. He was just a dude. But he walks by them and his power resonates. He is the Holy Spirit. They're all in one. And he says, hey, come follow me. I think he's saying that to you right now. I think he's asking you, please come follow me. Not because I want to hurt you. 
not because I want your life to not look as good, not because I don't want you to experience the good things of the world, none of that, because all that can be included in your following Him. He wants you to follow Him because it's how He created you to be. It's the most powerful, energetic, courageous, conquering, overcoming way to live. Wow! Did I get off track? I hope that makes sense. I want to quickly finish with the scripture I've got marked, and I wanted to first go through how this scripture even got written because that's the cool part. The cool part is how God works through the things that happen in our life that look like they're going to destroy us. The things we're talking about, the ways. So, really, really quick, I got five minutes. We all know who David is. We know that David was a king of Israel. Before he was the king of Israel, this is Old Testament, before he was king of Israel, he was a kid, and and he had six brothers, and his family was a well-known family. David was the runt. He was the youngest. He was insignificant. His brothers were awesome. The Bible explains that they were kind of like me, good-looking. They were tall. I know. <laughs> they were tall. Hey, I got a stain on my shirt too, but I thought my stains were lifted, Lord, but they're still there. I think it's, I don't know what it is. Anyway, they were big, strong dudes. They were like lieutenants and colonels in the army of Israel. They were very important, prominent people. David was a shepherd. David didn't even, wasn't even in the army. David spent... He was alone with his sheep. And he's out there, but he's got God with him. He's a man after God's own heart. God, God fingers him early in his life. And he's like, this guy right here. And so as a boy, he kills lions and bears with like sticks and stuff. I mean, like he does things supernatural. We also know that this is the same David that conquers Goliath. And remember, he came up to Goliath and they, they were like, dude, come on, you're a kid. And, and the only reason he ended up there was he was taking like food from his dad to his brothers. He, he wasn't there significantly, but he was delivering something to his cool brothers. And when he got up, he's like, what's the big problem? And that Goliath comes out and he's like, anyone want to, you know, and he slayed thousands of them already. And we remember when we've talked about that, we draw the distinction between Goliath and the things that pursue you today in your mind that those Goliaths are not bigger than your David, that David can absolutely, and the reason that you can conquer those things in your life is the same reason David, David should have never conquered Goliath, ever. He was a kid. Not only was he a kid, King Saul tried to put his armor on him, and you know, he's like that kid that they dress up to send to school. You know, he's like, I can't, I'm not free to, I'm not free to get after it like I did with the barren lion. I'm, I'm restrained. He's like, he threw all that off, and he said, God's my armor. And he runs out there, and Goliath runs out there, and he, and he says, today I'm going to conquer you. Like he claims it. He claims it in, in, in the situation. So you've got to claim it in your life. And he takes that stone, he just flings it, and it hits Goliath in the head and drops him dead, and he goes out there and cuts his head off. He puts it to death. This is the same David. Now, of course, he becomes a hero. He grows up. He becomes Saul's 
great, King Saul's greatest general. He becomes so great in Saul's army that King Saul becomes jealous of him and wants to kill him. Matter of fact, he begins to pursue him. In this, this I've done that. I'm King Saul sometimes. Like, I'm really happy for you until you start getting better than me. Then I get, you know, left to my own devices. I'm like, now wait a minute. I don't like that dude that much. <laughs> this is what happened to Saul. <clears throat> David flees. He lives in caves. He's away from his kingdom. Eventually, they, Saul dies, and David becomes king. He takes his rightful place. God has anointed him king. I forgot that part. Way back when he was a kid, he was anointed king. They were trying to anoint his brothers, and they're like, well, do you have one more son? They're like, yeah, that one kid. And, the, and God anoints him. So he takes his kingship. He does incredible things for Israel. He, he, he brings the kingdoms together. There's one Israel, and David rules over all, and they conquer all enemies that come at him. He's incredible for the people. And then we know that David makes an error, a huge error, and he doesn't go to battle with, the, with, the, with his army, and he gazes upon Bathsheba from his roof, and he has an affair. We know this. We've talked about this. He sleeps with her. He has her come to the kingdom. She's gorgeous, and he falls prey to his fleshly desire, and he sleeps with her. Not only does he sleep with her, she becomes pregnant. She becomes pregnant with a child, and she's married, and her husband, Uriah, is a great man of Israel. He's in the army. He's away to battle. He, David starts concocting a plan. Isn't this how we do this? David starts concocting a plan to cover up his behaviors and his poor choices. We know that he calls Uriah back into uh, the kingdom, and he's like, hey, we want to thank you for your incredible service. But the whole motive for calling him back, he'd been gone for many, many, many months, was in hopes that he would come back, he would take the king's um, gratitude, they would shower him, and then before returning to the army, he would go home and see Bathsheba, and naturally husband and wife have been apart so long that they would sleep together, and then the child would be his. This was David's plan. Uriah, being such an incredible man for Israel, like so selfless, what does he do? David says, go home, be with your wife. And Uriah's like, Lord, I am so devoted to you. I am so committed to what we are doing as a kingdom. I cannot take five minutes and stop by and see the old lady. I'm out of here. And he heads back to the army. And David's like, what? You know, he's like, so he has to take it a little further. This is not the main, I'm trying to get somewhere, Todd. What does he do next? He, he starts talking to his warlords as they're manufacturing how they're doing battle. And he says, listen, move Uriah to the very front. Move Uriah to the front line, and just as we start getting heat, I want the army to pull back and leave him up there by himself. And that's exactly what they do. And Uriah gets killed in battle. David takes Bathsheba as his wife, thinking that that makes it 
better. God is extremely disappointed. God lets David know he's very disappointed by a prophet coming to him. And the prophet tells him a story. And we won't, we're going to skip that. But the story, and David gets infuriated by the story. And Nathan fingers him. He goes, that's you. You have done this in the sight of God. And David crumbles under, and this is the main part I want to get at. He crumbles under repentance like like some of my conversation last night was a Holy Spirit moving in your life. We have talked multiple times that you can be overcome by the Spirit, and when you do, like, like spiritually crumble. You guys know I've said that lots of times. Like you just break apart, and like I start crying when it happens. And that happens to you. David does that. David realizes at that moment, and he confesses to the Lord, he realizes, oh my gosh. And he falls down, and he breaks apart, and he becomes overwhelmingly mournful. However, there's consequences. And the consequences are this child's going to die. This, I'm gonna, the child's going to be born, but the child will die. God tells David that. Seems like a heavy thing to you know, contemplate, right? But you guys know there are consequences for our actions. This was the consequence. David mourned and fast until that happened, and the child does die. When the child dies, he gets up, he cleans up, he, he quits mourning, and he goes to Bathsheba. They're married now, and he consoles her. He, he comforts her, and they end up sleeping together. And the whole reason I've told you all that is that through David's willingness to repent, to accept the, the weight of the Lord and to confess his sins and to give it up and repent, like break apart. Ah, oh, I am dirty and I want to be clean. And God swoops in and cleans him. And through that cleansing, a son is born. And his name's Solomon. Solomon... I've got to skip a whole bunch. Solomon becomes king. Solomon becomes the most richest person that's ever lived on earth. He becomes incredibly wealthy. His kingdom is united. There's no division. It is flourishing. He is a man after God's heart like his father. And he writes a book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes, even non non-biblical, non-Christian people say it's the most wisest thing ever wrote. That it is profoundly wise. So he wrote this book, and there's a piece of it in here that ties together with what happened back there and what happens in here and the therapeutic value of one addict helping another. Those kind of statements, I believe, have been given to us by God through Solomon. Because Solomon says something. The whole reason this came up is because we're actually talking about this at their wedding. So Solomon writes something and about what it takes with each other. So he writes a ton of stuff. I'm going to stop. Let me read it. He writes a ton of stuff, but there's a little clip right here in chapter 4. This is verse 9 and 12, through 12. And Solomon writes this. He, he's, went, he's went into all these things about nothing under the sun will satisfy you. He's talked and he's really worked it down to like 
there's nothing. At the end of the day, you still have this unsatisfied spirit. He said, I've got everything. I could not want for anything of the world. But if I put my, hang my hat on that, I'm unsatisfied. And he goes on, and I would encourage you to read Ecclesiastes. It's not very long. It's profound in nature. It will lose you, but just keep reading it. He says this in 4, 9 through 12. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But if someone falls alone, he is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how warm can one be alone? A person standing alone can be attacked, can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. So he is calling us together. Lord, I hope that sticks. I hope that what all we said, something that we have been expectant, that our hearts been open, that you have spoken to each individual life in this room, that we can't escape the power of your love that you're calling into our life. We want to accept that. Lord, I pray that we'd break over today, that there'd be one, two, or all of us that would come into a moment today that your love would come crashing in like a tidal wave and it would be so scary and so powerful, we would break under the love and you would then grab us up and you would make us into who we are to be and that we would be full of that love and instead of being crushed, we'd be all powerful. In Jesus' name, amen.